If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. It's on page 233 of the blue Bibles uh, that are in the pew racks in front of you, or you can find the passage printed in your bulletins. We are continuing with our study, our look at the book of 1 Samuel. We've been in 1 Samuel for several months now, and considering in particular as we look at Saul, Israel's first king. Now, we had a little bit of a break last week, and the week before that, I had us in two different chapters. We were in chapter 10 and then in chapter 19 because of the similarity uh, in what was taking place in both of those chapters. But today, we're getting a little bit more back in order right now as I take us to chapter 11. But just the quick reminder that Saul, in chapter 10, after uh, finding Samuel and being spoken to by Samuel, Saul was anointed to be Israel's king or Israel's prince in chapter 10. And then he was given a series of signs uh, by Samuel to confirm that kingship. And at the end of chapter 10, we saw this public gathering, this worship service, if you will, but a public gathering of Israel wherein God made it clear that even though the people had chosen kingship as a sinful, idolatrous action, they were just looking for some way out of the trap, some way to protect them from the people who were around them or to be like them. Nevertheless, this was in fact part of God's plan. And God confirms that by showing his selection of Saul to be king over Israel. And the response to that in chapter 10 was that some people rejoiced in it and they shouted, long live the king. They went and joined Saul. But there were others who kind of looked at Saul and looked at the situation and were suspicious. They were skeptical of the whole thing and they said, how can this man save us? Chapter 11, as we go into it, gives a response gives an answer to the question, how can this man save us? So let's read and hear this portion of the very word of God. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a tree with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, 
so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The first fight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and spirit of God. Spirit, you who rushed upon Saul, would you come upon us as well? Would you take this word and bring it upon our hearts and bring it upon our minds so that our lives are transformed by the hearing of your word and by your mighty work in our heart? Lord, in and of ourselves, we're hard-hearted. We're blind. We're closed ears. We don't want to hear anything. But we pray that you would open us up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you to tell me about your first fight, I wonder what pops into your mind. If I say, tell me about the first fight, maybe, maybe your mind immediately goes back to grade school and you think of some incident that took place on the playground in the hallway, probably not in a classroom, but on the playground, in the hallway, those were where those sorts of things happened. Or maybe, maybe if you're married, when I say, tell me about your first fight, you think of the first fight that you had as a couple that was serious. Maybe it was, uh, I don't know, maybe it was as you were dating or as you were engaged or after you got married. Or maybe when I say, think or tell me about your first fight, maybe you think about a knockdown drag out that you had with your brothers and sisters over something. Now, here's another question for you. How'd you do in the first fight? How'd you do in your first fight? Did you win or did you lose your first fight? The, the reality is that fights and fighting are a part of life for all of us, whether we'd like to admit it or not, whether we'd like to acknowledge it or not, they are. And they are, in fact, an important part of the life of kings. To a significant extent, when we look at the trajectory that's presented for us here and then in other places of scripture as well, we can say that it's, it's this first fight 
that legitimizes kingship, that legitimizes a particular person in the office of being a king. Uh, You could say it another way. You could say that the first fight consummates the kingship. It is the place wherein the king shows his mettle, proves what he's worth, shows what's inside of him. In Samuel thus far, we've had this anointing that took place in chapter 10. We saw the signs uh, along with Saul as we moved through that chapter. And then we had this public ceremony that already took place in which it seems like Saul was made the king exactly at that point. God's will was made clear. The people acknowledged it. They shouted out, long live the king. That looks like everything you would need to make a king, except for the fact that when we get to the end of this chapter here, we read it together, they went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king. The fight is significant in the recognition of a king. Hopefully that king in that first fight subdues the enemy. So here's what we're looking at today. We're looking at Saul's first fight. And then we're going to look at the first fight of two other kings. And then we're going to see what kind of implications that has for us as well. Now, if you have been with us over the past couple of years, then as I read this story today... It felt familiar to you. The outline of it, the contours of this story sound like things that you have heard before. In particular, this sounds a lot like the way things went in the book of Judges. As we read all of those stories in the book of Judges, this sounds very familiar to it. An enemy oppresses the people of Israel. The people cry out, God raises up a deliverer or a savior, or judge, all of those being closely related to one another, and through the working of that savior, that deliverer, God brings salvation to the people. God defeats the enemy and relieves the burden that has been upon the people. But now, something significantly different has taken place. The contours are the same, but it is a king. It is an appointed and acknowledged position, and it is an anointed person in that role who is now functioning as the deliverer. When the elders, if you recall it a couple of chapters back, when they petitioned Samuel, when they said to Samuel, give us a king, they listed any number of reasons why they wanted a king. And I won't go through all of them, but you Perhaps remember them. We want to be like the nations who are around us. But the last thing that they said, the last reason that they presented for their desire for a king was that we want a king so that he will go out before us and fight our battles. Why do you want a king? Because you've got enemies and you want somebody to fight. You want somebody to take care of the enemies that surround us. Kings must fight. They must lead in battle. And Saul is appointed as that person. Let me read you a little summary about Saul from 1 Samuel chapter 14. This may surprise us, 
because of course, and this is biblically accurate, when we think about Israel's first king, when we think about Saul, we think about all of the errors and all of the downfalls that, experience, that are experienced in his life. But listen to these verses that describe Saul, the fighting king, in chapter 14. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Kings need to fight. And Saul, on behalf of Israel, fought lots of battles against lots of kings. In our passage here, as we read it, you saw that Saul returned to his home and he's found in the field plowing behind the oxen when he gets word of that monstrous threat from Nahash and the plea of the people from Jabesh Gilead, the, the plea of the men uh, he hears of this. And, and here's what we want to recognize. No sooner is Saul chosen to be king than we see a clear expression of the reality of what Psalm 2 says. And I quoted it, or I put it on the front of your bulletin so that we could see it clearly. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the first time that Israel has had an anointed king. And what that serves as is this huge, it's a huge event in redemptive history. We haven't had a king in Israel before, and now we're establishing this position, an anointed king over Israel. It's a huge event in redemptive history, but it's a loud ping on the radar of Satan. He goes, whoop, all through history, I've been tracing these men all through history, and now, bing, a ping, a ping right here. A king has been established, and it gets his attention. Just like Psalm 2 says, it gets his attention so that you're going to turn against the Lord's anointed when he is on the earth. Now, I find it hard to know, to go back to this immediately, I find it hard to know what to make of Saul being in the field uh, behind the oxen at this point. On the one hand, I like it. I, I like the fact that kingship didn't seem to go to his head, and he's still a man of the field, and he's still out working with his hands. I like that. But perhaps, perhaps he should have been establishing the government. Perhaps he should have been pe putting people in key positions and establishing the army to begin to defend the people. It's hard to know exactly what to make of that, but there he is in the field when he gets news of that. In any case, I think there are two things in particular to highlight here that precede the fight, that go before this fight. And the first is the one that you will recognize from the passages that we, we, we looked at two weeks ago. The first thing to see here is that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Now, we've seen this already in his life, and we saw it in the book of Judges, but it is worth looking at that again 
to see the source of Saul's strength, to see the source of any of the strength that any of us have in any of the fights in which we're engaged, is the Spirit of the Lord God being upon us. Now, let me say something at this point, because if, if you know anything about the book of 1 Samuel, you know things regarding the Spirit in Saul's life are going to get very complex, and they're going to get very complex very quickly here. So let me, let me make a point. When we are looking at this aspect of the Spirit of God empowering Saul, we are not looking at the saving work of the Spirit of God in Saul's life. Not looking at the salvation of a soul when we're looking at the working of the Spirit here. What we're looking at in this particular point is that the Spirit of God is coming upon a person for a particular purpose, a particular task, or a particular role that that person has to play. The very indication that back in chapter 10, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and here in chapter 11, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and in chapter 19 that we looked at, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, is indicative of the fact that this is not the abiding presence of the Spirit of God that saves. This is the empowering work of the Spirit of God to, in this case, defeat the enemies that have abounded. But the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul for the task that confronts him. Secondly, what I want us to see that is also connected to what we saw last week is the connection that exists between the Word and the Spirit. The people are rallied to come out for war after, not just Saul, or after, meaning in the name of, let me just say in the name of, not just in the name of Saul, the people are rallied to come out to engage in this battle in the name of Saul and Samuel. In the name of the one upon whom the Spirit rests as king over Israel, and in the name of the one through whom the Spirit speaks the word of God to Israel and to kings. The unification of the word and spirit is at work here. Those are the things that are empowering, that are enabling Saul and then the Israelites to go out into this battle. Now, the fight itself, we're not going to spend any time on this fight itself because it's very briefly described in the text itself. The victory is thorough, and the Lord is given the credit for the victory. And an answer is thus provided for those who doubted Saul or doubted the Lord's ability to save through a man like Saul. And that's why when you get to the end of it, you have this question, where are those ones who said that? Bring out the people who doubted the Lord's work, who doubted that the Lord could work through Saul. Let's have done with them. The answers are provided. God can work even through Saul. And this kingship is renewed, to use the language that is here. Israel is united in a covenantal celebration that continues into chapter 12. So the first fight for Israel's first king goes well. But now I want to consider the first fight of two other kings so that we can put this first fight 
in context. The first fight of King Adam and the first fight of King Jesus. King's fight. Last week we saw from Psalm 8. Rick Tyson opened up Psalm 8. And we saw how humanity was created, crowned with glory and honor. So as Adam and Eve are created, they're crowned by God. That's a position, right? They're vice regents. They're under God. But they're crowned. They're royalty on the earth. They're given dominion with all things put under their feet. King Adam had the life of the Spirit of God breathed into him. He had the word of God given to him. And he had three commands that are particularly relevant to our topic today. Adam had these commands. Subdue the earth. Exercise dominion over the earth. And keep it. Which, to translate it differently, guard it. He had those three commands given to him as a king. This is your responsibility. You subdue, you exercise dominion, and you guard it from enemies. These are royal commands. And though those words might sound to us domineering because we see them from a sinful perspective, we see how those things have been abused throughout history, and that's no joke, they have been. Nevertheless, had Adam and Eve exercised them, they would have exercised them beautifully, and they would have been forcefully employed. But even this perfect king in this, can we call it Eden, Edenic? In this Edenic place must fight. He has to fight. He's a king, and that's what kings do. He should have protected his wife. He should have guarded the holiness of the garden. He should have heard the corruption of the words of God coming out of the mouth of Satan and said, that's not truth. That's not truth. We reject it. And he should have taken that serpent and he should have grabbed hold of him and he should have taken him and judged him, thrown him on the ground and done what? Crushed him. Should have crushed him right then. That's what King Adam was supposed to do. That was the charge that was given to King Adam. You judge those falsehoods. You remove this evil. You guard this place, and in particular, you guard that woman. From the entrance of evil into the world. But of course, he didn't. He lost. He lost the first fight and forfeited the crown of humanity. That's what happened. The crown of humanity was forfeited on that day. It was given to the father of lies, making all of us subjects of the prince of the power of the air, as Paul called him. All of us subjects of the domain of darkness. Salvation from that. Salvation from that demands a human king to do what we were supposed to do. We need a human king to succeed where Adam failed. What the human king must do is crush the head of the pretender. 
He has to crush the head of the serpent to protect the people. So we go throughout history and then we come to this point. There's been no kings, no kings of Israel since Adam, no kings of God's people since Adam. And the raising up, the anointing of a king in Israel creates all of the sudden this image, this idea that, wait, another king has stepped into the battle. Before this, we've just had people who've come up for little points and times and things like that, so be it, okay. But now, a king has been raised up to step into the battle. A, a place has been created, an image has been created, a, a, a space marker, a place marker. Is, is set up in the history of God's people as a king, an anointed one, comes to the foreground. And Satan sees it. And Satan's idea is always going to be the same when he sees an anointed head over God's people. Send the kings after him. Send the kings after that one Subdue him, subject him, defeat that anointed one. That becomes his mission. The anointed one has now been set up, everybody after him. Everyone after the anointed one. We kill the anointed one, we preserve the domain of darkness. We pres preserve the rule of darkness in the world the failure of Israel's kings to sustain any kind of victory creates this longing for the coming of another anointed one. So enter Jesus. Jesus enters into the world, and as he enters into the world, what do we read? A king is trying to kill him. A king is trying to kill him. The anointed one has come into the world, and Satan says, Herod, get him. Get him now. Send out everybody over there to kill that anointed one as soon as possible. He's anointed officially at the baptism by John. And immediately, what takes place after the baptism of Jesus? He's led into his first fight. Because that's what kings do. Kings fight. Kings go into battle. And so the Spirit of God leads Jesus as the son of Adam, as the son of God. And of course, in his fight, Jesus is not in a garden, but he's in the wilderness. He's not full. He's fasted. He does not have 300,000 men plus 30,000 of the men of Judah, though he could have, if he desired, 12 legions of angels at his side. He is there by himself, and Nahash is not the opponent, but the prince of darkness himself is the opponent of the anointed human king at his first fight. Satan thus to Jesus, so you're the anointed one. You're the one. We've been waiting. Wait, there have been a lot of people who have kind of had this title along the way, the anointed one of God, but you're saying you're the anointed one, the one with a capital A. There have been lots of sons of God, but you're saying, no, 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 that you're the son of God, capital S, you're the one? You're the anointed one. The human who's going to stride against 
me, who's going to come to battle against me. So Satan tempts him. And when we think of the temptations of Jesus uh, in the wilderness, we kind of apply them, and, and, and this is fine to do this, to the temptations that might confront any of us. But if you look at them more closely, they are temptations that are particularly associated with the fact that he is the anointed king, that he is the Christ. That's what's being challenged by Satan. Show me your power, right? Okay, so it's not just about wanting bread. It's show me your power, because you say you're the powerful one. You say you're going to be powerful enough to beat me. Show me it. The next temptation has to do with his authority. I've got this authority, says Satan. It's been delivered to me. I've got the authority. I'll give you the authority. I'll give you this. I'll give you reign over these things if you will reign under me. And so is the third as well. Cast yourself down. Cast yourself down. It's been written that the angels will guard you. It's been written that you have mighty men of valor. That's what they were for, for Saul. That's what they were for David. It's been written that you've got angels. Go ahead. Because it looks like you're alone. All of the temptations that are faced by our Lord are temptations that relate to him being the anointed king, to him now being in that position where Adam was, where Saul was, where all of the rest of Israel's kings were. He's in that position to be tempted. Satan has been bowling a perfect game throughout history. He has bowled over, he has hit a strike with every one of Israel's leaders throughout history. No exceptions. And all of the sons and daughters, all of the rest of us, all of the, the hoi polloi have been involved in it as well. He's hit every one of us. He has struck every one of us down. All of Israel's kings have fallen. They fight and sometimes they win a few battles. Saul wins this first battle. Good for Saul. Satan doesn't care. I'll get you the next time. I'll get you another time. The temptation of Christ is the first fight of the last king. And the weapons that he brings into the battle are twofold, and they won't be surprising to you. He brings into this battle what? The word of God, which he has laid up in his heart, and the spirit of God. He's full of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who has led him into the wilderness. And he returns victorious in the power of the Spirit and begins the work that was given to him. It is the work that was given to Adam. It is work that was given to Saul. He begins the work of subduing, of exercising dominion over the earth, of keeping and guarding all of his people, to say it, as is said in the other gospel writers, in Luke, uh, pardon me, in Matthew and in Mark, from this moment on, Jesus begins preaching the kingdom of God. Kings have to fight. Jesus has to fight. He has to be victorious at that moment. And when he is victorious at that moment, he, now the anointed king, having bound the strong man, says, I'm proclaiming a new kingdom. I'm proclaiming the kingdom of God come on earth and I will protect and guard and subdue a people unto myself for my father. 
Snatch him, if you will. Give it your best shot. He, on the front of your bulletin from 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. He has to reign. He will reign until every enemy is under his foot. A climactic conclusion awaits when this king returns. King Adam failed. King Saul couldn't sustain the good fight of faith. King Jesus will not fail. And so to us. There's probably a lot of things we can pull out of this today for us. But two, I think in particular, apply to us today. We may be of royal lineage. And as image bearers, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we are. But we, like all of our royal predecessors, have fallen. We have lost the fight against temptation and against sin and Satan. The enemy is demonstrably stronger than us for all of our resolutions. Think with me here for a moment. For all of our resolution, resolutions to be done with sin, to fight against this or that particular sin, to say to this or that particular sin, you will have dominion over me no more. How many resolutions have you made? I suspect then that every single one of us here has tasted of the power of the evil one. We know defeat. We may look down on Saul in just a couple of chapters, but we know the taste of the bitterness of defeat because you failed, we've failed in the resolutions that we have made to overcome him. And therefore, therefore, what we need is not in the first place a resolve to fight more boldly. We need in the first place a refuge. We need in the first place to find an anointed king who will fight our battles for us. Yes, it was sinful when Israel requested that. It was idolatrous. But at the same time, God used it to make this image people of earth. You need a king. You need a king who will fight and who will defeat sin and Satan. And to us, a son has been given. The Lord Jesus has come, and the good news about the Lord Jesus is that he, as king, is willing to take enemies and turn them into friends. For enemies is what we were. Enemies is what we were. In the story, we like to put ourselves in all sorts of places. In the story, the reality is we're Ammonites in and of ourselves, in our natural selves. We're those who are in rebellion against the king until the king turns us. And by his grace, calls us into his kingdom. For the sake of your soul then, people, do not oppose the anointed king. Do not oppose the anointed king. Bow the knee to the anointed king. Kiss the son. 
and he will lift you up and give you a seat with princes. Just ask Hannah. She's the one who said the anointed one would do that. She's the one who prophesied that that's what the anointed one would in fact do. Secondly, and I'll be very brief, just a few sentences in conclusion. Secondly, there is for us something else. Would you join me in praying that the Spirit of God would rest upon us in power? This is a unique situation. Parallel to what? Pentecost? The Spirit of God came upon them like a rushing wind. This is a unique situation. But the Spirit of God has broadly been distributed now. Would you pray that the Spirit of God would rest on us with power to take the Word and use it not only for our conversion, but for our transformation into warriors in His name. Warriors equipped for the fight, for love, for holiness, for truth, for goodness in the midst of an evil world. Because the reality is, fight we must. Fight we must. Not by our might, nor by our power, but by the Spirit of the victorious Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, be merciful to us. Have mercy upon us. We know the taste of defeat. And Jesus, in you, we have tasted the victory, the victory that you achieved. Pour out your Spirit upon your church, upon us, and allow us the joy of walking with you in the splendor of holiness, in the midst of this world with confidence to do that which is good, to speak that which is right and true. Jesus, we ask this in your name. You are the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Amen.